2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where the historian who dares stand up to the falsehoods of history inevitably wins. The podcast where the embassy of myth is stormed with ultimate force. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and fellow historian, Kyle Glover. These intros are getting worse you know. Hello everyone. This week you may have guessed we're on the history of special forces and to take us onto this journey into history so secret we have to blank out at its face we are joined by best-selling historian, writer and TV consultant Gavin Mortimer. Gavin welcome to History Rage. Good evening I love that uh,
1: storming the embassy of myth that's very uh, pertinent to what I'll be doing tonight.
2: Well, you came to us on recommendation from our season three guest, Rob Lyman, and I have to confess, you know, book, still to read. But for our other listener, tell us a little bit about your career and your background before we get...
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm still calm and level-headed. I can take you back to 1998, and that was when my wartime SAS, I I should say, that uh, I just write about the wartime SAS, nothing uh, after. That began when I interviewed Malcolm Pladle, who was the first SAS veteran I interviewed. And I probably interviewed oh 75 I'd have thought now. And and I've also interviewed written books about the Special Boat Squadron, the Long Range Desert Group, Merrill's Marauders, the American Special Forces Unit. Um and it's I'm I'm drawn to these to these Mavericks, maverick units, and maverick men, mm-hmm. and that's really what they, uh, what they were. And David Sterling, who I'm going to be raging about in very polite fashion tonight, was was a maverick in more ways than one, and that's why he's got away with this false reputation as a warrior for so long. And and the book, David Sterling, the Phony Major is a culmination of twenty-four years of research. And in that time I've matured as a writer and as a man. I was in my twenties when I started this. And and so I I, I was beguiled by Sterling by the, the phantom major at the beginning. And it's only as I, as I did mature and as I began to speak to the veterans and also just ask myself questions. And, and I suppose there's a, a cult of the SAS, a, a mythology and a sort of an aura that's, that surrounds them now that makes historians very loath to, to delve too deeply, to, to challenge the myths. And I suppose, in a way, that was the hardest obstacle to overcome.
2: Okay, well, while we're uh, diving onto that subject, because I can see it's winding you up already, let's kick straight into it, shall we? Gavin, please, for History Rage, will you please tell our listeners the one thing that you wish everybody would just get over?
1: That David Sterling wasn't the phantom major, that he was more the phony major, that the real intellectual driving force of the SAS was his big brother, William Sterling, and that the physical force of the SAS was Blair Paddy Main. Both of those men, post-war, were marginalised and belittled and disparaged by David Sterling. And my book is putting the record straight
2: now we're not going to get revenge strikes from the sas here are we i don't really want to piss them off
1: i don't think so no no um i haven't uh, i'm i'm not i'm not critical of the regiment far from it i i it wasn't it's extraordinary story that in the space of what 81 years from 1941 when the sas were formed to what they are today that well, is some evolution and it was made possible by its its members wartime and after and of course we we're, we're concentrating on the war tonight but they've um served uh with great distinction in Malaya in Borneo in uh, uh the Oman and obviously in the Falklands and counter terrorism and the Gulf and Afghanistan etc so no I'm, I'm sterling as i explain in the book really used and exploited the regiment in the 1960s when he got into the the uh, high end mercenary business uh to enrich himself and he he dragged the name of the regiment not into the gutter but he he dragged it down and uh, again that's something that I expose in the book and so I hope very much it's uh, it's not a hatchet job as i said this is 24 years of research in um in this book and mm-hmm. so it's it's a, a very deep and a very comprehensive, and I think a very balanced account of not only how the SAS really came into being, but how David Sterling manipulated the truth post-war.
2: So, just moving Sterling aside at the moment before we get into the meat of this, because we're a broad range history podcast, we have you know everybody from wartime all the way back to Saxon, Roman, Dark Age, and so forth. So. Just so we're understanding the difference in wartime special forces groups, can you explain the difference between, say, SAS, SBS, SOE, LRDG, all the other acronyms that that appear?
1: Yeah, okay. So let's go to start with June 1940, uh, when Churchill wanted uh, a guerrilla unit, Butcher and Bolt. It was the one way, after the disaster of Dunkirk, that the British could strike back At the Nazi, so he really invited the not just the British Army uh, in general, but individuals within the army to come up with ideas. So one of the first in June 1940 was a chap uh, from Leeds, uh, Roger Courtney, who has was a big game hunter in the 19 uh, in the 1930s, and uh, he canoed down the White Nile, and uh, he was an adventurer. He had the idea of forming a canoe section, a very small unit, to use canoes to attack enemy shipping. This came to be known as the Special Boat Section, the SBS. Now, this is different mm-hmm. to th- from today's Special Boat Service, which is the Royal Marines, uh, and that's Cockershell Heroes, the the 1942 Operation Frankton. Courtney was – was the, the SBS, as Courtney formed it, was an army unit. You also had in this went out to the Middle East in 1941 and eventually was subsumed into the SAS by David Sterling. But he really had no idea how to to best use the SBS, this small, uh, small uh, canoe unit. Roger Courtney, disgruntled, went back to the to the UK and and continued with his uh, SBS, his, his special boat section. For the rest of the war, SOE, which was formed in uh, 1940, and that was, I suppose, more the the cliche of the secret agents of the of the men and the women. A lot of very very brave and effective women agents parachuting into occupied France and um, in in civilian clothes. And then their job really was to was foment resistance w- within the the local partisan band So uh, France and yeah. Italy, they were also active in Southeast Asia. Uh, and later in 1944, SOE units, three-man units, Nick, uh, codenamed Jedbra performed they were the link between the SAS, who were operating in France, and the local Mackie uh, group. So they were very important, the SOE, but yeah, main, mainly recruited civilians who could speak French or Italian, etc., and had skills Relative to the to the operational theatres, the Long Range Desert Group, who really were the pioneers of uh, certainly the desert special forces, they were formed in June nineteen forty by a in a nineteen twenties desert explorer, Ralph Bagnold, who had been a regular army officer in World War One, being posted to Cairo, was intrigued by the the western desert that lay west of of uh in egypt and eastern libya and he had the idea of a uh, of a reconnaissance force to to penetrate deep behind italian lines this is uh, 1940 and to find out what they were doing Mm -hmm. and just to pioneer new routes and they really were uh, the the masters of a desert brilliant navigators in fact just recently the last of the original navigators um, a chap, Mike Carr, who I was privileged to get to know quite well, he uh, he died aged 101. They were uh, and and they actually worked with the SAS in 1941 and 42, navigating them to their targets, often enemy airfields. Uh, they would drop the SAS a few miles from the target. The SAS would go in and foot, and then rendezvous with the long-range desert group. And so they'd been for, in existence for a year before the SAS was formed in August
2: 1941. Okay, so initially, because I know this is going to be linked to uh, Kyle's question, but in, initially then, what were the SAS set up to do?
1: Well, the, initially they were formed to be a parachute unit. And the six officers, 60 men, and David Sterling had been part of Force under the command of Bob Laycock. And these were uh, five commando uh, troops, three from the UK, seven, eight and eleven commando, and then two from the Middle East, 50 and 52. And they came came together to form lay force commando. But they they went out to the uh, to the Middle East in they arrived in March 1941, kicking their heels didn't have much to do, and uh, because of the Rommel, obviously, in the Africa Corps had arrived and the whole complexion of the Desert War had changed, the Allies from being on the front foot against the Italians were now on the back foot, and uh, there was a, a certain inertia and frustration among the commandos. It was Lieutenant Colonel Laycock in May 1941 who first had the idea of parachutes, of of Attacking enemy targets by parachute, not as lay force had planned uh, amphibiously. And Sterling and another officer, uh, Jock Lewis, uh, took this a step further, procured some parachutes, did some experiments. Both of them injured themselves landing. Uh, but nonetheless, David Sterling wasn't, wasn't, uh, perturbed by this. He persisted with his idea. And this is where his brother Bill, who I mentioned at the beginning, comes in. Bill Sterling at this time was, uh, working for the chief of a general staff at Middle East headquarters, Lieutenant General Arthur Smith. He had a great grasp of the situation in the Middle East, the weaknesses in the British. Uh, And the strengths, one of the strengths being the Long Range Desert Group, a good friend of his, uh, Michael uh, Crichton Stewart, was an officer in the Long Range Desert Group. So together, the two of them came up with the idea of a parachute unit. And that is initially what the SAS were formed for. They underwent their parachute training at at Cabrit, 80 miles east of Cairo. And their first operation was November the 16th. 17th to coincide with operation a large british offensive operation crusader and it was a disaster of the 55 men who went on that operation only 21 returned 34 were killed or captured and they had the misfortune of the the, the raid coincided not just with a big british offensive but with one of the worst storms to hit the region in a, a couple of decades and it made the the jump very hazardous. Mm. Stirling had been warned by the 8th Army and advised not to go ahead with it, but he he persisted. He was a gambler by nature, and uh, it ended in disaster.
0: So to feed into that, given this is a brand-new style of warfare and a brand-new style of operation, how does the SAS evolve and develop during the course of the war from that initial starting point?
1: Well, after that, the failure of the first raid, the Long Range Desert Group came to their raid. And as I mentioned earlier, they transported them to, to targets and they were very successful. So uh, two raids, both led by Paddy Mayne at Tamit Airfield in December, uh, destroyed 51 aircraft, uh, a fuel dump. And Paddy Main also shot up a, a mess room full of German aircrew. Uh, they continued working with the Long Range Desert Group. For the first six months of 1942, in that time, they destroyed, I think it was 143 enemy aircraft, more than the RAF. And then in June 1942, Paddy Main had the idea to use the uh, the Willys Jeep, the American Jeep, to become self-sufficient. And uh, they equipped this with twin Vickers from a, a Gloucester Aircraft. Which could fire, I think, a rate of fire of uh, twelve thousand uh, rounds per minute, and uh, so this was a devastating new weapon. And at this time, they also had acquired the services of one of the long-range desert group's top navigators, Mike Sadler, still with us today, the last survivor of uh, of the original, or, or certainly the, the nineteen forty-two SAS, and. Uh, in so in July, for example, using this method, the SAS destroyed eighty-six enemy ar- aircraft. September nineteen forty-two, they were expanded to regimental status, uh, and this was the the seeds of, Sterl- of David Sterling's downfall because he began to lose control of the SAS. It had been his own little baby, his private army, mm. but uh, Middle East Headquarters knew that he was. Uh, slips shod in, in logistics and that he needed to be brought under tighter control. And there was one operation that Sterling agreed to a raid on Benghazi in September 19, uh, 1942, which was really everything that, well, it was in direct contrast to, to the uh, initial raison d'etre of the SAS, which was using small units to uh, to attack uh, German targets. This was a force of over 200 men, a couple of tanks, huge column of uh, jeeps and lorries heading towards the Libyan port of Benghazi, ended in disaster. Moving forward to 1943, it was actually Bill Sterling who, in May 1942, raised a second SAS regiment, two SAS, and he reverted to parachuting. Uh, And as I said, it was it was Bill, really, who came up with the idea. David, you see, after that initial parachute jump, not once until David Sterling's capture in January 43, not once in those uh, 14 months were parachutes used again. Bill Sterling, as soon as he took command of two SAS, uh, they deployed by parachute into Italy Operation Speedwell, September 1943, very successful, Uh, five groups of two or three men uh, attacking German lines of communication in the north of Italy, blowing trains off lines uh, and really disrupting the um, the rail network. This continued in uh, autumn 1943 with two SAS and in 1944, which was probably the there, in terms of effectiveness, there was a stellar year for the SAS. By this time, they'd been raised to a brigade. One SAS, two SAS, three and four SAS, which were French and a company of Belgians. They operated in France and uh, behind German lines. Uh, the first operation was actually on the night of D-Day. And in total, they killed 7,000 733 German soldiers destroyed 740 motorized vehicles, blew 29 locomotives off the line, cut the railway line in 664 6- occasions, called in 400 airstrikes and won the, the high prize of the high praise of Eisenhower, who said that the, the ruthless determination in attacking the Germans had been most beneficial to the successful Second front in France. So, so really, in from from nineteen forty one to to nineteen forty four, in a two and a half years, in effect, they'd grown to two thousand five hundred strong brigades and evolved their their tactics, used the the new uh, weapons and transport at their disposal, and had really become the most effective. Special Forces unit of any army in the
0: war.
2: So, moving on to Sterling, then you say Sterling is the phony major; that the, it's not what he's painted out to be. So, what is he painted out to be? Why is it complete bollocks? And what is the evidence?
1: <laughs> okay, so I'm going to quote you a line here from a 1958 memoir. The Phantom Major. My book's The Phony Major. You can see what I've done there. Uh, and this is from Virginia Cowles, who was hired by Sterling to turn him into uh, the uh, the Pimpernel of the desert, as one newspaper described him. Okay, quotes. Sterling became a legend to the men who served under him. There was no trap from which he could not fight his way, no occasion on which he could not outwit the enemy. A black-bearded giant with inexhaustible energy. The dark, shrewd eyes shone with a cold determination. Good God. Virginia Cowles would have us believe that that was David Sterling. Actually, that is a very good description of Blair Paddy Main. Paddy Maine was killed in a car crash in 1955. For the 10 years after the war, as I write in the book, he'd been the custodian of the SAS honour. Twice, Sterling had tried to get his memoir, his story, into print. But the first time, a collaborative effort with several SAS officers, but Maine wasn't having it. The second time, in about, I think, 1951, Sterling wrote his own memoir, but it was rejected by a publisher because it was too banal.
0: <laughs>
1: with Maine out of the way, the way was open for Sterling to come back from Southern Africa, where he'd taken himself really into a self imposed exile. He hired Virginia Cowles, who was an American, had a fascination with the British upper class, which of course uh, was Sterling's class. He was a, a minor aristocrat. And she wrote very sycophantic biographies. She'd written one of Churchill in the early 50s. Churchill had loved it, it and sent her a note of uh, saying how much she'd uh, appreciated it. So she was the right woman to, to turn Sterling into Paddy Maine. And as I say in the phony major, the, the phantom major is littered with inaccuracies. It portrays Maine as a undisciplined, barely articulate, brooding, aggressive, misfit in a way. Sterling says that he was he was mm-hmm. in prison when he approached him to join the SAS. He was not in prison. Yes, he had had a altercation with his commanding officer of number 11 commando, a man called Geoffrey Keyes, very similar in every way to Sterling, a fop, really, Indolent, entitled, and deeply, deeply insecure in the presence of Paddy Maine, this natural-born guerrilla soldier. So not only does Sterling diminish Paddy Maine while embellishing his own record, overlooking his many mistakes in the war. So, for example, I mentioned that in December 1941, Paddy Maine had destroyed 51 aircraft on two raids at Tammet Airfield. Just up the road at Sirt Airfield, David Sterling had twice tried to destroy enemy planes. The first time he'd stumbled into a German slit trench in the darkness, <laughs> awakening a very startled Italian. And in the second occasion, he wandered into a minefield. His men, realizing that they're in a minefield, passed up the line in whispers, tell the boss in a minefield. Boss in a minefield. What? What? What's that you say? At the top of his voice. And of course, they were chased off that particular airfield by the Italians. So this is not uh, a man born to a regular warfare. And uh, let's just take, for example, his capture, January 1943 in Tunisia, a harebrained escapade to try and link up with the first army who'd landed um, in Algeria and were coming were coming east down through Tunisia. Sterling, his vanity, he wanted to be the first representative of the eighth army to link up with the first army. So he drove his five jeep convoy with 14 men relentlessly on this pointless mission. And they passed through Early one morning, a German motorised column having breakfast. Now, remember that everyone was pretty dusty uh, uh, in the desert driving. And so the Germans couldn't quite be sure who these strange outfit was. And they gave them quizzical looks. But a few kilometres up the road, Sterling turned off into a wadi, a dry riverbed, and said, right, let's get our heads down for a few hours. Inexplicably, he posted no sentries. Okay, this is the this is the Phantom Major, the man who's been running the leading the Germans on a merry dance, so he would have us believe for the best part of a year. And they just get their heads down and a couple of hours later they're woken to find Germans standing over them with their schmisers pointing in their noses. That's how Sterling was captioned. Again, ranking competency. But none of these facts are mentioned in the Phantom. Major. The other person who's barely mentioned in the Phantom Major, in fact, he's referenced just four times in the index, is his brother, Bill Sterling. Now, I've said already that Bill Sterling was the real architect intellectually of the SAS. I'll just say that in uh, what I haven't mentioned was that in 1940, he was recruited by SOE. We talked at the top of the show. And he mm-hmm. actually saw, uh, this just shows you the, the sort of the, the mind he had. He he quickly realised that SOE was ill-prepared for the sort of irregular warfare it was wanting to initiate. So it was his idea to set up a guerrilla warfare school in the northwest of Scotland, which was opened at the beginning of June 1940, the Special Training Centre at Le Islet. Bill was the chief instructor. Contrary to popular myth, David Sterling was not an instructor. He was a pupil there, and later Bill took him on as his adjutant. And through that centre, in the summer and autumn of 1940, passed around about 3,000 commandos. These were the independent companies, the 10 independent companies, without getting into too much detail, the forerunner of the commandos, formed in the uh, beginning of 1940, went to Norway. 2,500 of them began to go, through, go to the Special Training Centre at the start of July 1940. So in Bill Sterling, we have got, as I argue in the book, the real father, not just of the SAS, but of British Special Forces in general in World War II.
2: Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Cleanie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. I'm Sandra,
0: and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect
2: role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
0: So we've touched on this a little, but how did Sterling then go on to start building this legend around himself rather than his brother or other more deserving people? Is it just the, the, the phantom major book or does he do anything else?
1: No, that's a very good question. The Phantom Major book kickstarts everything. Uh, Sterling really had disappeared off the scene um, in the decade after the war. And uh, as I said, it was, it was the death of Maine that, that he, he saw the opportunity um, because he'd started this organisation, the Capricorn Society in Southern Africa, which hadn't gone well, was in financial trouble. So he needed a role. Now, this is where Bill Sterling comes in, because the obvious question is, well, hold on. Why didn't Bill say something? Well, Bill Sterling was A, very discreet, unlike his brother, and B, very secure, unlike his brother. David had many character flaws. He was immature. He was insecure, impatient, impetuous. Bill Sterling was none of these things. That was, you know, an individual character, but also he was the firstborn. There were six Sterling siblings. David was the fourth. So in the general scheme of things, insignificant. Bill, the firstborn, inherited the the land, the Keir estate, very large, grand estate in central Scotland near Dunblane. A lot of money, the status, the power in 1932. He married a beautiful woman, Susan, in uh, December 1940, and they started a large family. Bill then had... A lot of business interests, and he saw that David had no purpose to his life. And this is a running theme throughout the book that Bill took David under his wing time and again. David lasted three terms at Cambridge University before he quit. He lasted a few months at an Edinburgh firm of architects before he quit. His mother and Bill were at their wits end, what to do with him. He was aimless. He was a lounge lizard, to to use the vernacular of the 1930s. They sent him to America. That's another thing, actually, phony major. David Sterling, in post-war, would have us believe he went to America to train to climb Mount Everest. This was his big ambition. He was a great climber. No, he was sent to America to ranch because the Stirlings had a family friend who owned a ranch out in El Paso and David was ranching. This whole Everest shenanigans was invented by David to make him look more windswept and interesting after the war. So Bill was happy to stand back. And to let David, and of course, David was, was involved with the, with the founding of the SAS. But Bill, I mean, even the SAS War Diary, the compendium of or their operations, which was compiled in 1946, even the SAS War Diary describes Bill as, quotes, a man from the shadows. He liked to remain in the background. He had, I should say, signed the Official Secrets Act when he joined SOE. So that was another thing. As far as I'm aware, David never signed that because he wasn't in SOE and, and the SAS in the war wasn't the secretive organisation regiment it is today. So, so that, was, that was why Bill was happy just to, to stand back. Now, the Phantom Major propelled David into the limelight. The book was reviewed enthusiastically. The timing couldn't have been better. May 1958, Britain's morale as a nation was at rock bottom. The Suez debacle of 18 months earlier, the empire was breaking up. You know, the sun had well and truly set on the empire, and yet here was a book that reminded readers of oh, the, the, the the buccaneers of old, the, of a, of another Elizabethan age, of uh, Drake and Raleigh, etc. And and so that it it sort of. And you know we had all those uh, John Mills films of that, that came out with the, the, the British <laughs> pluck, etc. And so it, it captured sort of a, a zeitgeist. The other very important factor was that David Sterling was a physically intimidating man. He was six foot four and a half, and he had a very People i the, the veterans I spoke to said he had this way of he would fix you with this bird like gaze of his. And you had these very penetrating eyes. And he it was he was very passive aggressive, i would say now. And he would just say, would you do this for me? I know you won't let me down. And you know, several men have said he just made you feel that there was so much riding on this and that you you just you you fell under his spell. And that is the word I heard time and again, not only from sort of working class soldiers. You might expect that this was a very deferential time, but from his his peers, Jellicoe, Fitzroy Maclean, Stephen Hastings, a Tory MP. These were men of stature, but they there was something about Sterling. He had this like, dare I say it, a Rasputin like hold on people. <laughs> and John Aspinall, for example. Or the Claremont Club, uh, the the zoo owner, and he 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 founded the Curt Claremont Club, which in the '60s was the was a sort of a, the rule that the the most prestigious gambling club in London. There's a quote that I quote Aspinall in the book saying, um, "With David, you knew he'd strangled forty-one men." Huh? David Sterling didn't strangle any men. Who told Aspinall that? Probably David Let's Sterling. Go or Aspinall just liked to, there was, you see, people liked the thrill of being associated with David Sterling. And so they weren't going to question the myth. They just went along with it and reading between the lines, however, and again, in the book, after Sterling died in 1990, I quote Stephen Hastings, you know, Gave a, a more honest assessment of Sterling. So did Carol Mather. Uh, Carol Mather, who was a, a Tory MP who was in the SAS. they began to the spell had been broken, if you like. So a combination mm-hmm. of those factors. Uh, one or two people did question Sterling. Len Dayton, when he was a young writer in the nineteen sixties, dared to suggest that Sterling and the S.S. hadn't quite been the uh, the force portrayed by Sterling. And he uh, he was sued by Sterling. He was a litigious man, and why was he so litigious? Well, he knew he had something to hide, and he bluffed, and he won it twice. Newspapers settled out of court, and yet, if they'd actually gone to court, and Sterling had been on the stand under oath, he would have had to own up to the truth.
0: Okay, so we've listed the SAS's achievements as a unit, but. In the grand scheme of the entire war, what difference did they make as a unit? How did, how did their existence affect the outcome of the war? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. It didn't that much,
1: really. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Montgomery, in his memoirs, name checks the Long Range Desert Group. The Long Range Desert Group are considered to be the most effective of any British Special Forces unit in the war, and in my opinion, any Special Forces unit in the war. I challenge anyone to show me evidence that there was a more effective unit than the Long Range Desert Group, because they pioneered routes. And in early 1943, it was the LRDG who found a route for, it was the the celebrated left hook that allowed Montgomery to come up from Western Libya into Tunisia, in this left hook, going around the retreating africa core and and so they blazed the trail uh, in in the desert and mm-hmm. and also I think psychologically, before the long range desert group came along we'd been terrified of a desert we'd well not terrified, but we'd been afraid to to go into its interior. the long range desert group, Ralph Bagnold. His philosophy was respect the desert, but don't be afraid of it. And because of that, uh, the Long Range Desert Group and the, the, then the Eighth Army were able to, to exploit the desert far more effectively than the Italians and the, the Germans. I spoke to actually Rommel's driver, a man uh, when I was writing a history of the Long Range Desert Group, Rudolf Schneider, who said, well, the, different, the great difference between us, the Germans and you, is that we were scared of a desert. We kept to the coastal roads, So that's a long-range desert group. Now, they were used tactically, uh, sorry, strategically in France, uh, the uh, special air service. And I think they're it, taking France first. What they did was that they instilled a confidence they in the Mackie in the local French population, because they were parachuting into areas, they, they were the first British soldiers that most of the, these French Mackie, I'm talking about down in, in places like Morvan in central France and Brittany and uh, going more towards the Vosges in eastern France. They're the first British soldiers other than um, uh, bailed out RAF pilots that the, the French had seen. And so they trained and organized them. For example, just a, a quote here from a Lieutenant Colonel Maurice, commanding, um, French forces of the interior unit in uh, Western Brittany, wrote a letter of appreciation in September 1944 to Brigadier McLeod, the, um, in charge of the SAS brigade, quotes, thank you for the generous help you have given to my battalion since D-Day. As a result of your kindness, uh, by the intermediary of the officer commanding four French SAS, 10,000 men have been armed in my department. I can confirm that my men have shown that they merit your confidence. More than 5,000 prisoners have been taken. At least as many enemy have been killed. So they really, their, their expertise, so materially and psychologically, the SAS had a great impact on, on the French in, in 1944. In Italy, and as in North Africa, they they destroyed a lot of aircraft and they destroyed a few bridges and they blew a lot of trains off the line. Did that really do anything to uh, influence the outcome of those theatres? No, it didn't. Uh, what it did do, I think, probably, and for me, the most important legacy of the SAS is that it showed what was possible with a small regiment of highly trained men, volunteers, very important that, Wingate in his long-range penetration, the Chindits of 1943, he just took over. I think it was the the 13th Kings Liverpool Mm. Regiment and said, right, you're going to become uh, Chindits now. And these were chaps in their late 20s and early 30s. A lot of them have been on garrison duties back in the UK until recently. And, you know, you, you need to select the right man for special forces and very interestingly in 1955 uh, 1952 22 SAS the SAS we know today were raised yep. as a regular uh, regiment in the British army and they drew they they canvassed the thoughts of the officers who had served in the wartime SAS the wartime SBS, the long range desert group to come up with the qualities required for the ideal special forces soldier. And one of those qualities was get rid of the tough guys because tough guys, the, the guys we all know them, you know, who sort of have a certain swagger about them mentally. They're the first to go. And it's, so it's just learning experience like that. And of course in, uh, from uh, from 1950 onwards, with uh, the SS were actually um, uh, initially going to be deployed in Korea, but uh, they weren't needed. So in, in, instead, they went to the, to Malaya to fight the communist insurgency, and the wars that followed the small wars as the empire was breaking up and former colonies got their independence. Their type of warfare was absolutely suited to this new type of Uh, It's insurgent warfare. So that, for me, is the real uh, legacy of the wartime SAS. It was created the template for what came later and for what exists today.
2: Thank you. So to bring this to a close then, I know you've named kind of a few candidates um, through there, but if we look at the reputation that David Sterling painted, at all of the achievements and character styles and so forth. Who deserves the reputation that he created?
1: Bill Sterling, his brother. Uh, there's a statue of David, which was uh, unveiled near the family home in 20 years ago. And I argue in the book that uh, it's great that there is a Sterling immortalised like that, but they got the wrong Sterling. It should be Bill Sterling. You know, Bill Sterling hasn't even got a Wikipedia entry. The man from the shadows. I was reading uh, just recently, Paddy Ashdown, his account of the Operation Frankton, what we know as the cockleshell raid in uh, Bordeaux in 1942. And there's a he confuses Bill Sterling mm-hmm. with David Sterling. There's a meeting in December 1942 at Combined Ops headquarters in London, and it's Bill Sterling. Who chairs that meeting? He was CO of number 62 commando at the time. Paddy Ashton assumed, and I'm not having a pop at Paddy Ashton. He just assumed, oh, well, it's a Lieutenant Colonel Sterling. It must be David Sterling. This happens time and again. Martin Gilbert, who wrote the wonderful biography, very comprehensive biography of Winston Churchill, same mistake in, 19, in 1943 in the Mediterranean, assumes that Lieutenant Colonel Sterling. It's David Sterling. It's Bill Sterling. David Sterling's a prisoner by this time. So Bill Sterling has, has been airbrushed. Now, his brother did a good job at that. And, and this is why I really rage against Sterling, because in some ways I admire him. He was not a born guerrilla soldier. He was not a born soldier. He was nicknamed the giant sloth when he was in the Scots Guards. He was lazy. <laughs> he was uh, dissolute, And he was, it was Bill. Who time and again put an arm round him and said, oh, Okay, David, I-, I can see you and the guards aren't working out. Come up to Lock come up to Lock Islet. I'll look after you. You can be my adjutant. Then he got him uh he got him into number eight commando. And then he helped him. Oh, that's another thing, by the way. I forgot that, of course. Now, if you read the um if you read any account of the SAS, David Sterling would have you believe that. He he broke into Middle East headquarters while on crutches. He climbed either over a fence, under a fence, through a fence, depending on which uh, version David was actually giving that day, hobbled past, some, uh, somehow out sprinted the, the sentries to dive into Middle East headquarters and thrust his idea for a parachute unit into the hands of of uh, Neil Ritchie, who was the uh, 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 General Smith's assistant. And, and that, you know, the, that, the audacity, the, you know, the, the devil may uh, care bravado of David Sterling. No, 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 David, you know what really happened. Your brother, who was the assistant to General Smith, simply said, here, we've got a good idea for you. And it was a good idea, and it was given the green light. That's why the joke in those early years, SAS, Sterling, and Sterling. <laughs> so in Bill Sterling died in 1983, and then in 1984, the refurbished Sterling lines, the SAS based down in Hereford, was was reopened. And Sterling gave what to me was the the low point of his life, a speech in which he said, uh, there are five Men who deserve to be recognised as my co-founders, one may say that that's magnanimous of you, David. They were Paddy Main, Jock Lewis. Jock Lewis was killed in 1941. He he couldn't leave those two out, even though he he was embittered uh, towards Paddy May mm-hmm. Paddy never took David seriously as a with good reason as a as a guerrilla fighter. But obviously their exploits were well recorded, so he couldn't do anything about those two. But he also mentioned. Um, Brian Franks, who took over command of two SAS in June 1944 when Bill Sterling was sacked, because Bill had a furious argument. You talk about history, rage, blimey. Um, Bill (laughs) Sterling had a raging argument with Montgomery because Schaefer at that time wanted to deploy the SAS tactically in France, i.e. drop them about 20 miles behind the beachhead to, to act as a blocking force to the German reinforcements, the German armoured reinforcements, suicidal. They'd have been just crushed in a matter of days. And um, Bill Sterling fought tooth and nail against this. He won. They were deployed strategically, as I said earlier, dropped hundreds of miles inside France to work with the Mackey, but it cost Bill Sterling his career. Um, Brian Franks took over. So, he he wasn't a co-founder, a very fine officer. And then Sterling also mentioned John Woodhouse, who uh, wasn't even in the wartime SAS. He came later. He you now he can't be considered a co-founder. And Georges Berger, who was uh, the Frenchman, uh, he joined uh, yeah. the SAS in with fifty Frenchmen in January nineteen forty-two, and was captured in June forty-two. So in a very minor role. Who did he leave out? Bill Sterling. Yeah, because he sibling rivalry, and to not to describe Bill Sterling as a co-founder, as the man who, with him, well, more than him, founded the SAS, really reflects very reflects very badly in Sterling and shows you the the mean-spirited man he was, the litigious man, the the grasping man, the greedy man, the man who was always on the make, was always looking to enrich himself. And it didn't matter whose reputation he tarnished along the way, his brothers, paddy mains, or the regiments.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Gavin. That that was ragey. And I I'm fairly certain now that we're definitely safe from SAS reprisals. That was that was putting history to rights. And it's opened an <laughs> eye into an area that I'd never really looked at previously. So thank you very much for coming on.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. And it's a, it's a, I love the format. I have to say it's a great idea. And uh, Mm. it is, it's a, because it, it, I mean, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting area. I mean, it's a topical area because, of course, you know, with, with, with what's gone on in the last couple of years with, with Churchill and generally sort of, you know, attempts to, how can I put it politely, revise history. And Mm. in the, in the case of Churchill, quite uh, wickedly in my opinion, but there are times, you know, it's, it's, it's beholden on historians to, to look into the past and to question reputations. And sometimes, you know, okay, so people may, I hope people don't uh, give me abuse for um, uh, for what I say about David Sterling. If they do, I will simply say, well, what about Bill Sterling? Is it, has it been yeah. right that for three quarters of a century he has been overlooked by history, so you know I'm, I like to just describe it perhaps as balancing history
2: thank you well ladies and gentlemen if you'd like to know more about Gavin's work then uh, you can start by uh, reading the excellent book uh, the phony major and that uh, at time of going out and release will be out and it can be purchased from the history rage bookshop there'll be a link in the show notes and you can follow Gavin on Twitter at phony major so once again Gavin thank you very much for bringing us the rage.
0: Thank you for coming on the show it's been great Pleasure thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen I hope you've enjoyed this episode you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually I am at Paul Bavel.
0: I'm at Kyle G History
2: and if you've enjoyed our work then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug and you can subscribe to us at patreon.com forward slash History Rage but until next week Thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.